0: Hear now the word of the Lord. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Amen. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that you would guide and oversee the preaching of your word. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in this text, where it would seem as if there is very few to be spoken of as wonderful in these verses, let us not miss what you have in this text for us. Let us grasp it all. Lord, this text stands with every other jot and tittle, every cross T and dotted I in the Bible as fully inspired, breathed out by you. And just as we want to experience and to take home the fullness of all of those passages, we long for that to be true today of these three verses. Lord, may we be edified by these verses and may we see you more fully glorified in our eyes as we behold you as individuals and as a collective body, glorified above us for who you are and for what you've done. Use this text towards that end. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, you can't preach without your notes. Well, kids, we're glad that you're staying in here with us. And like I told you a couple of weeks ago, we want you to listen for words that you didn't know before and ask your mom and dad about them when you get home or pay and pay attention for things or ideas or concepts that you've never heard. Ask your parents before, but we're glad you're here. You guys are a part of our church, so we're thankful to have you in this room. Now, last time... Two weeks ago, what we did was more theological than exegetical. And by that, I mean we were going after a a topic, an idea versus just taking the the words as they come. So last week, what we were doing was trying to prove biblical and logical consistency of of a construct, a biblical principle, a theological construct, the, the doctrines of grace, As to why, if the T is true, the rest of them have to be true. If the first doctrine of grace, total depravity, is true, why the rest of the five have to be true. That's what we did a couple weeks ago. What we're going to do today is open the Bible and simply follow it as the Holy Spirit inspired it. That's more exegetical. Now, by way of reminder, chapter one was all about God and what God has done. We looked at the Trinity. We looked at each person of the Trinity, their roles in redemption. That's what we saw in chapter one. Chapter two is about us. I mean, it's also about God. Everything is about God, but it's about us. And it turns to the question of if if that's what God did in salvation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Who did he do that for? And how did it happen for them? Why did they need it? That's what we're looking at in in chapter two, particularly verses one through 10. Our passage today, and why do we need saving? Not just improving, not just adding to, not just correcting, not just educating. We need saving. Why do we need to be saved? All. What is it about mankind that needs that? And we're gonna, we're gonna see three things that contribute to that need, the flesh, the world, and the devil. Consequently, the three things that Christ completely conquered on the cross. We're gonna see those three things as the reasons why. In chapter one, what it did was it gave us salvation from God's point of view. This is what God has done. You're looking from his vantage point into the salvation of humanity. But what chapter two is going to do is look at salvation from the individual Christian's point of view. What is it from our side of it? Well, how do we go through it? What does it come How does it come upon us? Chapter one gave us the past, the present and the future of God's salvation plan. And chapter two gives us the past, present and future of whom Christ saves And today, in verses 1 through 3, we're going to be focusing on the past. Who were you? Or maybe you could even say, what were you before Christ? That's what we're going to be looking at. And we did a lot with chapter, with verse 1 last time, so we're going to spend just a little bit of time on it today. Verse 1 says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We talked about being born a sinner. You don't become a sinner you were dead in trespasses and sin. You were born that way. That's how everyone starts this life. You began as a sinner. No one has ever taught a baby to sin. Now, kids, do any of you have a little brother or a little sister? And then has that little brother, when they were like 18 months old, two years old, have they ever hit you? Have they ever stolen anything from you? Did you have to teach them to do that? Did you just say, hey, little sister, this is how you do it. Pick your hand up and hit him right in the face, just right like that. Did you have to teach them that or did they learn that on their own? Now, have you ever seen your little brother or sister as a toddler steal mommy or daddy's phone? What do they do when they do that? They run like an NFL running back, don't they? They just, you can't catch them. Why do they do that? Because that's how we're born. And it says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Trespasses is the Greek word, paraptoma. It means like a false step. Stepping off a path, crossing a boundary. So you think of trespassing, right? Like you went across a boundary that was set up that you weren't supposed to do. And then sins is the Greek word, harmartia. Harmartia, and that means missing the mark or falling short of a standard. So trespasses and sins, think about it as sin of omission and commission, things that you were supposed to do that you didn't do and things that you did do that you weren't supposed to do. Or you think about it like this: You're violating God's law, and you're failing to live up to it. You're not as holy as God's law says you should be, and you keep doing the opposite of it at the same time. You're not living up to it, and you're and you're violating it at the same time. That's what trespasses and sins, meaning that you are utterly unable to please God. That was kind of the focus of of a couple weeks ago. Utterly unable, the total inability. So we looked at the first fact is that no one can please God. No one can come to Christ upon their own power. No one. You're spiritually hopeless. The book of Ephesians tells us that. Chapter 2, a little bit later, verse 12, says, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. So at that time when you're separate from Christ, what are you? This is what it says. You're excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You're not a part of the people of God. Strange is the covenants of promise. God has made no promise to you. You have no hope and without God in the world. That's our status before Christ. You are spiritually hopeless. Spiritual death is true hopelessness. No confidence of assurance of a blessed future reality. That's what hope is. When we say hope, we have to define it as the Bible defines it. Hope is not just a uh, wishful thinking. Hope is a confident assurance of a future reality. And if you are hopeless, you have no assurance. The Bible gives you no promise, no guarantee, no positivity of a future blessed reality. Hopelessness. And then what are you dead in? You're dead in sin. You know, remember we talked about back forever ago when we did the overview of Ephesians, one of the phrases that we're constantly looking for is in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Who are we in Christ? That that massive theological concept. Well, before that, you are in sin and you are not in Christ. That's the outside of all that is blessed and good and swallowed up in all that is wretched and evil, to be in sin versus being in Christ. Now, you gotta ask Paul, You just started off this letter just wonderfully, man. It sounded so good. Everything you were saying was just, I'm praying for you guys. I'm thankful for you. Here's what God has done. Here's here's the gloriousness of his grace in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Here's my prayer for you that you would continue to be enlightened. And then you turn the corner into chapter two and it says, and you were dead. Wait, wait a minute, what? We were just talking about Jesus and his body and that he's the head and we're, we're the body, but then you would go like right at the throat like you were dead? Why bring that up? Why say it like this? Why not start the letter here? Why start out great and you got my interest and then now you slam the door on me? Why structure it like this? Bring us back down. It is because the church Needs a regular reminder of what she once was in order to consistently worship God for what he always is. We need a regular reminder of what we once were so that we can consistently worship God for what he always is. Hey, let me give you a, a, a passage that I'm pretty sure nobody has read recently. Things that get buried in the major prophets and the minor prophets, there is gold in those hills. But one of the things that God does in those major and minor prophets, he's, He is wrathful towards His people in different stages of history. There's also gospel promises that come from those books. You think of like Joel 2 and Isaiah 7, 9, 11. But He also is instructing His people and reminding them of who they were and He's doing it directly speaking straight through the prophet. Now he's speaking, the text we're gonna look at, it's kind of a little bit longer, but it's worth reading. Ezekiel 16, he's speaking through Ezekiel to his people, reminding them who they were, and he's giving them a picture of being a, a, a baby, an infant newborn baby girl. That That's how he describes the, pe- the, the people of Israel before they were his. Let me, Just follow along with me. This is a little bit longer, but it's worth reading. Ezekiel 16:3. Ezekiel's told to say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. No eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field for you were abhorred on the day you were born. When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. I made you numerous like plants of the field. Then you grew up, became tall, reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at that time, For love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you would become, that you became mine, declares the Lord God. Then I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, and anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet. And I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hands and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus, you were adorned with gold and silver and your dress was of fine linen, silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey and oil. So you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor, which I bestowed on you. Now, see how God periodically reminds his people what they were before. And he doesn't do this to humiliate them. He doesn't do this to do anything but to stimulate them to praise to praise and faithfulness. they asking them, how are you now clean? How, how are you clothed with silk and linen now? How are you adorned with gold jewelry? Why do you have the majesty of God upon you? Why do you eat such good food? Why? Because God went and found you when you were a discarded infant just thrown into the woods. I mean, the imagery is so graphic and so gut wrenching that to see a baby infant with the umbilical cord still attached, just covered in blood out in the field. That's what you were when God found you and he reminded you of all of that, because what are you now? You're described as beautiful, You're you're living the the lavish life of of a queen to a king. You're covered in fine linen and silk. You eat honey and fine flour and the majesty and the splendor of God is upon you. Why did he do that? So that you don't let your new wealth and stability and peace become (sighs) lost upon you. That's why Paul does this in the book of Ephesians. So it doesn't become lost upon you, what God did. I used to be a a baseball coach and our athletic director, his name was Rick Osborne. He grew up in West Texas, poor as as dirt, just, you know, working blue-collar jobs, finally got educated, or he he grew up in northern Louisiana. And then he got educated and he moved to West Texas, found a way to work his ladder up to uh, work in this oil company, and he started doing really well for his life. And then he just kind of retired from that and just coached for free, coached baseball and an athletic director at this little Christian school. And he was telling me one time of this story, he has his oldest daughter, Shelby. She uh, was 16. And, you know, when you get about 16, you think that you're a genius. A few 16-year-olds in here, you're not, just, just so you know. But you think that you are. And even if I tell you that, you're still going to believe it. So good luck. I thought it too. And Shelby thought she was a genius. And so she's coming to wrestle with the issues, you know, the day, reading newspapers and, you know, engaged with all these things. This is before blogs and Facebook and stuff. Uh, And so she's reading about oil companies and they're corrupt and all this stuff. And gas prices are so high back when gas was probably like a buck ten. And um, she's complaining about all that stuff. and, And Coach Osborne said he just said, he just said, Shelby, come here. And she's like, okay, what, what do you, got? and she's like, let's go up to your room. Goes into her room, opens her closet and says, where did this come from? Well, uh, you bought it for me. Okay, what about this one? He goes to like each thing on her hanger. And then he does all of that stuff in all of her room, computer, all that stuff. And then let's go out to the driveway. What about this car? Where does it come from? "Well, oh, you, you bought it for me. You know where this money came from? It came from the oil fields. And it came from me working hard out there and working my way all the way up to be in this certain position and all these things. She had grown to contempt with contempt towards what she had been given. And that's what we can do. If we are careful, we were not careful, God's grace will become contemptible to us. We will begin to think that we deserve it. We will complain about minor trials. In comparison, minor trials will think. I deserve, you should be doing this to me. And how could possibly you let anything bad happen to me? This is a book called The Valley of Vision that I use for prayer a lot. It's just a collection of prayers from Puritans and others. And one of the the, the lines I wanted to read because it just fits this so well, it says, this is a prayer, keep me always in the understanding that saints mourn more for sin than other men. For when they see how great is thy wrath against sin and how Christ's death alone pacifies that wrath, that makes them mourn the more. When you understand what your sin is and what Christ did, you don't grow to contempt for God's grace. You understand, you appreciate so Paul takes those Ephesians to the heights of the throne of grace in chapter 1. And then he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, and you were dead. That's what you were. You can't forget this. But he goes on. They need to understand more. What Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1, 2, and 3 is, is essentially a condensed version of Romans one eighteen through three twenty. It's just squished into three verses, what was in three chapters in Romans. But in verse two, it says, In which you, the sins and trespasses, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So now we've entered into a new realm. What we looked at in verse one was total inability. You cannot do anything. But this is in which you formerly walked. That is volitional. That is you choosing to do that. The word, the, the word uh, in Greek for walk is peripateo. And in B.C. or uh, 335 B.C., Aristotle, you've all heard of him. You know that he's an old Greek guy. He's a philosopher. It doesn't matter what he said. But he had what were called peripatetic schools to where he would essentially lecture and walk lecture and walk around. And the word parapateo, which is where he got the name because he is Greek and the Bible is written in Greek, New Testament, is to conduct one's life. That's what that word walk means. And this is the first time the word walk appears in the book of Ephesians, but it's going to come up again and again and again from here on out. The conduct of your life is the word walk. And see, here's the thing. What you are is in verse one, you were dead at the bottom of the pool but now also you are actively swimming downward. Because just like with salvation, the Bible uses many words to describe the process like adoption, redemption, justification, on and on. With sin and depravity, he's using several things too. You were dead, but you were also active in it. It's like we, we used to live out the, in East Texas. I used to work at a camp out there. And kids, what we would see sometimes, we would see venomous snakes. And venomous snakes... Don't need to keep living. Non-venomous snakes, that's okay. But a venomous snake, you gotta kill it right away. One time, Anna called me in a panic because Mallory was two years old and there was a coral snake under the steps going out the house. Coral snake is the most poisonous North American snake that there is. So I come flying home on my bike and I grab the biggest thing that I can, which is like a pickaxe that was this long, and I'm just wailing on it. And what you do when you go for a kill snake, you kill it at the head. But what happens when it's dead and its head is removed, partially removed. I don't know if you've ever seen this, kids. I hope you never have to see it. But the body keeps writhing. It twists and moves and keeps looking like it's alive to where when you have so much adrenaline running, you think that it is still alive. That's us, that we're dead, but still moving and still acting in accordance with the evil that was in us. We're still moving and writhing in this dead state. You actively hated God and gleefully disobeyed his law. It was not that you had desire but no ability. Like you're, you're paralyzed and you're in a chair and you can't get up, but you really want to get up. It's not like that. That's not our state before Christ. It's actually that we had no ability and no desire. Just like a fish out of water. The fish doesn't want to be out of water and it can't be out of water. And anytime a fish is out of water, it's doing everything it can to get back in. It has no desire and no ability. That's what we were. You were drowned dead and swimming deeper into the abyss. And that's true no matter how old you were when you got saved. If you got saved as a young child, that was true of you beforehand. You had no ability to come to God on your own and you didn't want to. You hated him. That's how it goes. Look at the verse, verse two, which you formerly walked according to something, according to the course of this world. There's enemy number one, the course of this world. You loved everything that the world did and offered, which is what? According to James 4, 4, you adulteresses, do you not know that the friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever makes himself or wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. To be joined with the world and to be lockstep following the world means I hate God. That's it. 1 John 2.15 says something similar. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You don't have God's love if you love the world. See, before Christ, nothing that the world did bothered us. We loved it. And even if it wasn't our particular cup of tea, I'm fine with you doing it. And I want you to keep doing it. We loved every sinful thing. We loved its immorality, its debauchery, its wickedness of all kinds. We loved it. We loved the options for sin that it offered to us. Just a, just a smorgasbord, a buffet, whatever you want to do, do it. And we said, thank you. Yes, I love this, this, and this. And loving the world like that is hatred of God. You can't serve two masters. You can't love the world and love Christ. You can't love sin and love Christ. You'll either love the one, Jesus says, and hate the other, or you will be devoted to the one and be despised by the other. You cannot serve two masters. So if you say, I do love Christ, but what about this sin in my life? Well, I also love that. and I'm not going to give that up. Then you do not love Christ. You hate him. And that's what we all were before conversion following the course of the world, meaning you're just getting washed downstream. There is nothing in you. You are in an inner tube. You are not in a motorboat. You're just going exactly where it's going. There is no resistance to its current whatsoever. And you're also enemy number two, an eager serpent of Satan. According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. The prince of the power of the air is a name for Satan. He's also called in St. Corinthians 4.4 4, the god of this world. Peter calls him a roaring lion. Does Satan have power over this world? It's limited, but yes, he does. Think about his offer to Jesus of all the kingdoms in Matthew 4. Is that a legitimate offer? Well, yes and no. I mean, He, he is the, uh, the overseer in a sense, the prince of the power of the air, but it also is, is not, it's like the used car salesman who just works for his uncle. He's got all the keys and he's saying, yeah, you can have all the keys to all these cars. They're not really yours to give away, but you do have access to them. You can jingle them in front of them and, and if you turn them and put them in the car, I'll turn them on and go. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. and His influence upon the minds, the values, the patterns and the moral direction, of the unbelieving global populace is real. It is real. He is not omnipresent, but his anti-God instincts are everywhere. His influence is real and it's irresistibly attractive to every unbeliever. You followed it wholeheartedly before conversion, wholeheartedly, no resistance whatsoever. You loved it. You wanted to follow it. He is actively, Satan is actively presently working in the sons of disobedience, He doesn't have to be everywhere all the time to affect every unbeliever on the globe. See, Satan actually works in uh, ways that uh, church gurus say that we should work. You need to influence the influencers, right? If If I can impact these people that are cool or look a certain way, then that'll trickle out to everybody else and then I'll get all of those people. That's church growth wisdom, which is actually foolishness. That's how Satan works though. He doesn't have to be in every single house controlling your TV. He just has to be in Hollywood. He doesn't have to be on the airwaves and uh, with political ads, and all that stuff. He just has to be in DC. He just has to influence the influencers. And that's how, like verse two says, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, he doesn't indwell every single person. That spirit, that ethos, that atmosphere is present in every single unbeliever on the globe because Satan does have that power and he can influence from the top down and you love sin. So when any, a new version of it comes down the pipe, you just jump on it. You just want it and it's everywhere. Like John 8, says, you, Jesus speaking, you are a devil and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But jesus That's Jesus rebuking the Pharisees. But what he's saying is true for every single non-Christian. They have the devil for their father. Not God, the devil. There's poor theology that circulates around constantly of everybody is, is the children of God. You just need to recognize it or come to it. No, no, no. You either of God, there there is no in between. See These children, they lie, they steal, they adulterate, they break all of the Ten Commandments. They continue on with all versions of new invented sins because they love their father's desires. They love it. They want to do exactly what he's laid out. That's what you did. That's what you did before Christ, no matter how old you were before conversion. Part of the reason why we have to sit and camp on these verses is that many of us in our context, particularly Texas in America at this time, many people get saved pretty young. And you don't have a real concept of what sin was, what you living in sin when you're 9, 10, and 11 years old. It's different. When you get converted at 24, 34, you know exactly what it was like. And you can remember all of it. But we have to be educating ourselves. This is the state of everyone, even if you get baptized at 12 years old. And you were truly converted around that time. This is who all of us were. And what are we? Verse three, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's what we were, children of wrath. You know, sociologists and psychologists and anthropologists are always thinking and hypothesizing about what is the greatest commonality of humanity. I mean, if you look at people in all different contexts, countries, uh, levels of economic uh, latitude, uh, primitive versus industrialized, previous in history, right now, modern day, what what really unifies all people everywhere? Is it, you know, is it their needs that everybody needs food and shelter, maybe community, or is it is it our desires that we all share in common, that we all desire love and peace and unity? I mean, what is it? What, what unite? What's the common thing? Thre- the, the brotherhood of all humanity is what these geniuses are after. What does it that we all share and have in common? All you have to do is open your Bible and you will know what it is that we all share in common. We are all depraved children of wrath. That's what everybody has in common. No matter where you go. No matter where you go. That's the common Denominator, sin. That's the reality that's shared by all people everywhere. And that's what Paul says at the beginning of that verse. He says, we too all. Because remember, verses one and two, he's been saying you, you, you. These are are Gentiles. These are the Ephesians. These are these people that are in Asia Minor. They need to hear this stuff. But then Paul turns around and says, us too. All of us. We all formerly walked, lived in the lust of our flesh. All of us, that's the uniting factor of all humanity. No one is righteous. No, not one. Romans 3, 10 through 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Because there's this concept that exists amongst high-minded academics that it's culture. It's upbringing that corrupts people. And there could be out there this idea of the noble savage, that if he just got away from all of our materialism and our one-upsmanship and certainly away from capitalism, then you could find people who were just good, just out in a jungle somewhere and they're just good. I was in the jungle six years or so years ago, four or so years ago, in Papua New Guinea, talking to an elder of this church where there is no electricity, they have no money, and they've only had clothes for about 20 years. So real, real, real primitive. Nothing works out there. And he was talking about how somebody stole from him. He had a flashlight and somebody stole it from him out in the middle of the jungle. Didn't even work. They didn't have batteries. You're uncorrupted by anything. They'd never even seen a white person at all until the missionaries came 20 years before that. There is no such thing as a noble savage. There is no thing who's uncorrupted. We are self-corrupted. We're corrupted by imputation and by self. That's the uniting factor. We are unable, verse 3 tells us, unable to not sin. Did you catch that? Unable to not sin. All we can do is sin. That's it. What could you do before Christ? Sin. That's it. The natural man is incapable of not sinning. Everything they do is sinful to some degree. Well, why? Well, I mean, come on. We see people do philanthropic things. We see people do, you know, kind things. Even unbelievers send money when Hurricane Katrina hits New Orleans or or some storm comes blows through here. Like they send money. Corporations send. They do good things. But are they good? Because nothing can be good unless it's done for the glory of God. Now, that can have a positive impact on culture and praise be to God for common grace. But it's not good. They can't do good. It's still sinful. Why? Because we all know that they did it. Why do we all know that they did it? Because they need you to know that they did it. They get the glory for it. Nothing they do is for the glory of God. All the philanthropy and charity they can do, it's all just filthy rags. Kids, have you ever done, been asked to do something by your mom and you didn't really want to do it and you had a really bad attitude doing it? Did that count? In my house, it doesn't count. In my house, my wife says it like this. She says, you didn't do that with a happy heart. None of this counts. Your heart behind it, matters because you didn't do it because you wanted to please mom and dad. You did it out of spite. And that's us. That's all we can do. That's what Isaiah 64, 6 says. For all of us have become like one who is unclean. Our righteous deeds, all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. All of them, filthy garment. That word filthy is the Hebrew word edah. That means menstruation. You know what that is. It has no redeeming purpose. It is garbage to be thrown away. those are your righteous deeds. Those are the deeds that you are doing that are actually positive in the culture or in your home. Why would God call good deeds of unbelievers that? These filthy rags because none of it glorifies God and God alone is good. And none of it proceeds from faith in God. Anything that a believer does, none of it proceeds from faith in God. And Romans 14, 23 says, whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. And if you don't have faith in God, then everything that you do is sin. And it's also true because of Hebrews eleven six. 6. And without faith is it impossible to please him. If you don't have faith in him, it's impossible to please God. No matter what you do, no matter how good it may seem. Natural men and natural women do what they want to do, and all they want to do is sin. Not one molecule of their being wants to obey God or glorify Him. So they don't, and they can't. And that means that we are worthy recipients of God's wrath by nature. That's what the end of verse 3 says. By nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. Your natural state, from conception, is on a worth is one worthy of wrath. That's what it is. All you are born deserving from God is wrath. Do, do we believe that? All that you are born deserving from God is wrath. That's the only thing he has to give. He's not obligated to be merciful, he's not obligated to be gracious. He's not obligated to be loving. He's only obligated to be wrathful. And he's compelled to bequeath that to you in its judgment. And you wanted it this way. I've been reading the the biography of Adoniram Judson. He's the first, uh, essentially, he's the first white missionary to ever go from America overseas. The first missionary ever was actually a freed slave named George Lyell. But the first white missionary to ever leave, Adoniram Judson, he goes to Burma, modern day Myanmar, and he's sharing them. It's all Buddhist, and it's uh, terribly disorganized, despotic, uh, a monarch, an emperor who does whatever he wants. And he's telling them, about God, and he's telling them the realities. They want to listen to him because he's interesting and he's, he's kind of a novelty as a, uh, as a Westerner there in their country. And he's telling these Burmans about the one true God and an eternal being. They have no concept of that. And they, it sounds so great. But then he talks about, when it comes down to it, the reality of heaven and hell. And they're saying, Well, if I believe this, I have to leave Buddhism. And like, he's like, Yeah, you, you do. Well, I guess I'd rather be in hell with all my family than be in heaven alone, be with Jesus alone. And I, <laughs> I talked to, to a, my neighbor and he says, well, yeah, have hell so bad, then couldn't I do more good there than in heaven? And that's what he said. I mean, this is, this is the reality. Worthy recipients of God's wrath. You, you know that you're under judgment and you want it that way. You don't care. You're under wrath and you don't care, but God's wrath is not capricious. Yeah, that's a big fancy word. Kids, ask your parents what it means. It's not a fruit drink. <laughs> His wrath is not capricious. It's not emotional. It's not momentary and it's not reactionary. All of our wrath is that. All of our wrath and anger is capricious. It's, it's momentary, it's emotional and it's reactionary. That's not God's. God's wrath is settled, logical, eternal, and unchanging. Here's how John Stott defined it God's wrath is God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve instead to condemn it. His wrath is not like our anger. Our anger is reactionary. Something happened that I don't like, and now I'm angry. And it's temporary because as soon as something happens that I do like, my wrath goes away. That's not how God's wrath works. God is eternally settled in his decision to condemn evil. It's not a reaction. It's not, oh, that's why we read Genesis 6. Because when you read that, you think, oh, man, they were just so bad. It made, finally made God mad enough to do something. That's not how any of this works. Nobody can make God be or do anything. God doesn't respond to anything that we do, good or bad. That's his settled, eternal, unchanging position towards evil is wrath. That's the only thing that he can be towards it. Evil doesn't make God react. He knows all evil and all sin and he hates it and he will righteously condemn it without loss of emotional control. He will always have control. And this wrath rests upon every human soul from birth. God doesn't play favorites. He shows no partiality. He is no respecter of persons. It says it directly in Romans 2. Psalm 5, 4 through 5. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. That kind of scuttles the boat of love the sinner and hate the sin. Because God doesn't do that. You hate all who do iniquity because God doesn't send sin to hell as a concept. He sends sinners to hell as real people. And if sin is as bad as the Bible says it is, and if we are as dedicated to it as Paul here says that we are, then the only logical response from a good and just God is wrath. That's the only logical response only logical uh, position. It would be a universe without order, without justice, or without righteousness if God didn't have this kind of wrath towards sinners. This is the natural estate of all people. Verses one through three. No exceptions. Is there also no hope? Can any of this be changed? Can it be altered? Can it be pardoned? Is there any possibility of forgiveness or renewal? What can we do? Nothing. You can do nothing. But verse four says, but God. You can do nothing, but God. If you don't highlight in your Bibles, I understand that, make an exception. Highlight those two words, but God. See, what you saw in verses 1 through 3 was you and the flesh and the world and the devil and we people and created things and evil, but God. Everything connected to you is nothing but wrath, nothing but sin, nothing but hopelessness, but God, everything that's connected to the creation that we see, the world, the systems that exist, the human nations, but God, the the things that we can't see, our own flesh and the, the God of this world, Satan, but God, all of that. And did you see in verses one, two, and three, it's all past tense. Were in verse one, formerly in verse two, formerly in verse three, were in verse three. All of it's past tense. That's what he's talking to these people about. The only solution to all of this is the unilateral grace of God. Grace is meaningless when sin and depravity and inability are sugarcoated. If you don't let verses one through three be what they are, then verse four might as well not even be written. It means nothing. Your situation wasn't that bad. You had a little bit of hope. You were just sick. You were almost drowning, but you grabbed the floaty. You're dead at the bottom of the pool. You're swimming away and you love it. You love drowning. But God, you were that. You walked formerly in those ways that you formerly lived in those lusts. But God. But God, grace is everything when sin, depravity, and inability are embraced and understood. You were impotent without power. God is omnipotent with all power. You were dead. God is life. You were vile. God is righteousness. And by his grace and by that power and by that life and that righteousness is imputed to you through faith. And why you? Why you? You are no more deserving than anybody else. Understanding sin and grace humbles you to the floor. When you see how sinful you were in those tightly condensed three verses, and then you see the complete 180 in verse four, but God, it changes everything. I'm humbled to the floor. If that's how we all were, and a verse 3 says, we too all were less. If that's what it was for me, why is that all past tense? Why do I now know? Christ, why is that not me still? Why can I see? You can't know the reason because it's in the mind of God, but you can be humbled with gratitude that is unending. And that's what we have. And that's what we are. So next week, we look at verse four. And you gotta have verses one through three before you can have verses four through 10. But next week is gonna be the rich mercy and the great love of God, the new life in Christ, saving grace, true faith, the gift of faith. All of that's coming, but you gotta have the bad news First, because good news is less sweet and unappreciated about the fullness of the bad news. You run the risk of remaining a first world whiner spiritually. You know, I'm talking about first world problems. My shower wasn't as hot as I liked it to be, even though I let gallons of drinkable water go down the drain. People all over the world are dying for water. You become that spiritually. If you don't understand the depth of depravity, when you do understand the depth of depravity, you look at that sinful past. Then you look at verses four through 10 with brand new eyeballs. You are driven to the heights of worship to God for his grace because of just two little words, but God. Father, we do look at those two words and we are we're floored. It's, it's almost unbearable to consider our state before you. We had no ability and no desire to come to you. We hated you. We loved serving Satan. We loved doing evil. We loved doing things that hurt others and hurt ourselves. We pretended that they didn't hurt others or hurt ourselves. We, we loved sin. We loved that which is despicable to you. We loved that which you will come back to destroy forever. We loved that which was so greatly rebellious against you that it cost the life of your son. We loved it and we cared nothing for him until you entered in the picture, until you butted your way in. You stopped the trajectory that we were on. You moved us out of darkness into light. And there was no reason below the earth, on the earth, or above the earth, anywhere for you to do that to us. Oh, Lord God, teach us. Teach us to have an appropriate understanding of our sin and depravity and evil and wickedness as uncomfortable and as uh, particularly unenjoyable as it is to sit in that, teach us to go and to appreciate, to remember that so that we will never lose sight of the glory of the gospel, of your wondrous work of redemption. May it just increase all the more. And as we now, as, as people on the other side of the cross, those of us who have actually repented and trusted in you, as we still sin, may we always remember what we just sang—that our sins were many, but Your mercy is more. Your mercy is always more. No matter how high those sins get stacked, Your mercy is more. So, Lord, we we need the discipline to not be uh, to not ignore our sinful past and our still struggle with sin now. We also need your wisdom to not uh, have a morose uh, acquaintance with it where we just sit in it and are depressed. That's, that's not what you want at all either. That's sinful too. And may we also never grow to have contempt for your grace and for the gospel, that we would grow unappreciative. We would grow entitled as if we're doing you a favor by following you, by going to church and reading the Bible. Keep us from both of those ditches and keep us on the middle of the road of the gospel. Keep us in the midst of the path, avoiding the lion on either side because those lions are on chains and we walk in the middle of the path. We walk straight in to the celestial city, to your heavenly kingdom. Lord, you alone are good and you alone do good. And by your grace, we can participate in that. We ask that you would help us as we seek to do actual good, that we would do so biblically. We would do so to the household of the saints first and then out to others as well. And not just cutting their lawn and providing them food, but telling them the gospel, that they might be saved, they might hear the good news and repent and believe. Lord, and we ask that you would watch over us as a congregation in these next couple of weeks as we go through this move, as we... uh, Go through a bit of physical unsettling or that you would watch over us, that you would protect us, that it would be a good reminder that even though we need to dwell in physical spaces, we are a spiritual people and that we can worship you wherever it is that you would have us be. We do ask that you would keep that time short as we uh, travail in a, in a rental, uh, an odd time rental space. We do thank you for the provision, but we ask that it would be short. Now you would open up a, a place for us to be, but use the time. We ask that you would help us to redeem the time, that we would make use of it, to remind ourselves that we are a spiritual people. We are a family, whether, wherever we put our heads under what roof. So Lord, we, we trust you for these things. And in these days, who else will we trust? Where else can we go to get the words of life? We can never go anywhere else and receive those words. We thank you for our Bibles and for the community of faith, and for above all, Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen.